Welcome back to another episode of Fret Buzz the Podcast, a podcast for musicians focusing on how we musicians and professionals approach our craft, giving insight to help us all become more informed and better musicians. Hi, I'm your host, Aaron Sefcik, and this week we're getting into part two with Paul Barsom all about, well, finding your voice within music, really. Um, all of this is because, of course, Paul has released a new album, Boy Interrupted by The Weed Garden. So definitely go on over to paulbarsom.com, listen to it. It's really good. Um, you'll have a better idea of what we've been talking about in these episodes, but definitely check it out. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. Next week, we've got uh, a really good guest that you're going to want to check out. Um, and other than that... Well, let's jump right into part two with Paul Barsom on Fret Buzz, the podcast. That's one of the things, like Tony mentioned earlier, like the, my path through creative work to this thing is kind of odd and a little unique. And um, one of the byproducts of that is that there's elements of just about every kind of music I've ever heard on this album. But it means that it doesn't fit into a genre. You know, it's some kind of rock. But I mean, I've been thinking about it for a while. Like, well, I mean, what? Let me just ask you guys: like, what? What kind of? What is this? <laughs> well, I, 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 I've said, I've said, with you asked me this question, we, you and I have talked about it. I, I look at the here. Here, I have two things about this. I think one, it fits if if you could put us into a genre, which I think is really something you shouldn't do. I think well, if you put into a genre, for me, I, other I, I think it right. feels more like progressive pop. Is what it feels like but that mm. being said i think it's something unique because it's written by a composer truthfully i mean think about it like 90 percent of the people who are out there doing songwriting are not are not classical composers paul they're they're yeah, just not they're, they're still they're, i don't yeah okay all right you see what i'm saying so like the, i think the path the pathway is is different and and i think it's hard to classify it but but the second point i wanted to make is like Going what we're saying today, do you think like with all the stuff we have out there, all the technology, do we need, do we need to even need to have labels? Do we need to have genres? Um, is it just enough to kind of have like stuff you're producing, which is like these classical or classic rock structures that are kind of have these compositional elements, you know, sort of surrounding them, these really ambient pieces. I mean, there's so many elements of this album, uh, so many styles that are there. Isn't it enough just to say, here's what I can write here's the stuff i produce and not have to put a label to it and say if there's this is like rock or experimental or ambient right. you know what i'm saying like oh, yeah. are, are we even going there anymore well uh only from the outside you know because like i don't want to put a label on anything i remember this this famous you know it was some tv talk show interview with the beatles in 1964 and they're asking paul mccartney so like what kind of music is this and he's just like well we don't even like to think about that you know yeah it's a distraction kind of music here and so for me, um, as I said before, I mean, this is a totally intuitive process. And if I start thinking about what kind of genre I'm writing, that just submarines the whole thing. So I don't think about it at all. It just kind of comes out. And I'm, and, but at some point when it's done, I look at it and just go, what did I do here? You know? Yeah, right, you know? yeah, right. Because in terms of, you know, getting it, well, let me put it this way. I would like people to hear this, you know, so somehow I have to get it before people who are the right people to listen to it, who are going to get it and appreciate it and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Eric, and I don't think it's, like, hard to approach music. It's 
kind of easy, but it's um, songs are a little bit long if you um, you know have all the solos and stuff. Um, you know, uh, for radio anyway. Although I have I'm making radio edits of them. Are you really? You take out all the good parts except the vocals and yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, they just don't seem to sort of fit anywhere that is already defined. And, you know, with Napster, I don't, I don't know if you remember, like, the structure of that. Like, mm-hmm. you could browse for genres. And the first thing I noticed was that, you know, there's, like, 25 different genres of metal yeah. Yeah. that come up. Yeah. Yep. You know? And then there are things like a student of mine turned me on to this, uh, the, a genre called doom wop. Doom what? Doom wop. So it's like... Like do wop? Yeah, like a this doom really dark, turgid kind of doo-wop. Doo-wop, doo-wop, So, yeah, they just Come on, Aaron. <laughs> out there. But what I notice is when I go to sort of sample stuff out there in the world, what I find is that the stuff that's being, I don't know if it's so much the stuff that's being made that's really visible, but the stuff that's being curated that's showing up, for instance, on all these playlists, tends to be pretty narrow in its stylistic intention, which is just fine. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a dance tune needs to be a dance tune. and can't have an extended ambient middle section or right. something. I mean, right. it's so, um, you know, so it makes sense. But, you know, on the other hand, if you're going to try and, you know, move the music into the world, you kind of need to know where to move it. So, yeah. So that for me, you know, I didn't even really think about that that much, but now I'm just going, Oh yeah. Who needs to hear this? as much well, as we fun. don't want to be labeled. And I understand where yeah. you're coming from, Tony, and I'd get that up very much. So we need, well, not we, but society likes labels that well, way. I when I go to you. iTunes yeah. or when I go to whatever podcast I want to listen to, I know exactly what to type in because SEO is yeah, you know, yeah, search yeah, yeah. engine optimization. What I type into Google or what I type into YouTube, mm-hmm. all the algorithms know exactly where to point me. So that stuff, as much as we don't want to be, and I, you know, it's had that exact phrase of, you know, well, what what kind of music do you are you writing or how would you how would you label Classify. your music for yeah. decades as long as I've lived and no matter who I ask as an artist they're like oh you know it's it's something different or I don't know how to classify it because it's and we all don't want on a personal level we don't want to be labeled because we want to think of ourselves as unique as unique right but right. the reality is we all exist within some kind of label or some kind of category genre so people can identify with that right yeah, and sometimes we don't even know. Right. You know, sometimes you're just too close to the stuff and you just go, I don't know what this is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. You know, it's a challenge to sort of, as, an, as a new artist. I mean, if you've been around for a while, um, you know, say 10 years or more, you know, you've probably evolved with the system anyway. So mm-hmm. it just sort of picked you up as it went along. But, um, you know, like w- if Radiohead was a new band, mm-hmm what would that like what spotify playlist would would that go on um you know yeah true yeah so that but that's the business model that we're kind of living with now i was going to ask aaron i was going to say because this is like you know you've particularly been taking the podcast running with it but this is more your wheelhouse is Mm -hmm. sort of like seo optimization all that so yeah um 
is it something today where people, let's say, create music, have to start thinking about fitting into a certain classification when they're writing music? Is, is you think that's, that's something that we have to do nowadays? Is say, well, I'm I'm writing whatever I want to write, but I I have to label this as rock because I know that on the internet, which is my main mode of transmission, mm-hmm. that this is where this is what I get. I can't I can't be so eclectic that I can't be like the guy down the street that just makes you know the stuff that nobody can talk about because it's so out there. You know what I'm saying? That was me as a academic. Really? Well, you know, that world has got a lot of really abstract music in it, you know. Um, That's partly why it's in the academy, because it's not, you know, it's got to live in that greenhouse, Mm -hmm. you know, to survive. I mean, there's not a commercial, you know, viability for somebody writing, you know, atonal chamber music <laughs> yeah but you know it's really interesting and then i then i start thinking yeah. about like aaron and i are big gamers so yeah. this is something you didn't know about me paul this you, is like i used to be <laughs> oh no no come on not come anymore on. not since the uh, podcast well okay then i am anymore. i dropped like six, 600 hours on red dead uh-huh. anyway um so you have like bands like 65 days of static that are these experimental bands right mm-hmm. they have yeah. this i mean they have success they are doing what they need to do and yeah. They have different outlets, though. They have, you know, they. Uh, well, a lot of it's based on live performance. I mean, I don't know if you guys know Godspeed You Black Emperor, this band from Montreal. They, you know, it's like it's a large. It's built on a rock band, so there's like a rock band core, but there's like three guitar players and two drummers. You know, it's kind of big, and then but there's a chamber orchestra around it and a visual, a visual. Um, what am I talking? Like a video person and a live sound person there's a lot of captured audio that goes into it but their 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 songs are like 20 minutes long so it's back to the old prog rock days of the early 70s yeah. but these are like it's informed by say american minimalism you know so it's like a lot of patterns slow builds long big arch formed kind of things they're really successful popular group but like you guys are really literate musicians and don't know about it. So there's yeah. all kinds of stuff out there that's going on like that and it can be successful but you got to have somebody that knows what they're doing mm-hmm. um in terms of uh you know marketing i guess yep yeah um, yeah yeah and, absolutely uh, yeah and how to how to deal with the i mean money is what makes a lot of the stuff sustainable or not so if you really know how to do that then you can do it that's why when i was 19 i'm like I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, I know how to do the academy. I can see that. That's a clear path for me. Um, you know, but or these you know, unrealistic kind of uh, sort of representations where you take, take like a band like you're just talking about. They're not going to be mm-hmm. playing at the church bazaar down here. They're just not going to do that. I mean, it's just it's not the right kind of audience. I mean, that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you got to cultivate that audience somehow. So you know, a mix of live and recorded things you know it's always sort of been part of that formula it's just a little different now you know um you know it can take different forms i mean one of the one of the advantages of say rap music for instance is like you know you you guys are playing rock bands you know how it is you gotta schlep all this heavy gear you know um it's just a big thing it's like if you're a rapper um you need a mixer and a couple of things that look like turntables and you don't you show up, do anything, you know? So the, the, that's just all the changing nowadays too, as well, though. What's that? I said, that's also changing as well. Um, oh, sure. It's weeks, all over. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago we had, uh, um, 
Ryan Brown on, um, and he was just talking about his Helix and how the days of amps and all lug and all that stuff is completely gone. All he does is bring his board, and that's it. Good night. Mm-hmm. He has everything he plug needs. In. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many guys should show up with a laptop and plug in and that's everything on Ableton or something mm-hmm. in there? There's, you know, I mean, well, even even old school people. I mean, you remember Getty Lee used to play. He just ran direct into the thing, and since Alex Lyson had all those amps over there. He just had a bunch of dryers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Six tumble dryers. Yeah, instead. the one tour we were on, he, he had that. So, yeah, I mean, everything's getting more portable. But, do you see um, what he just did, by the way? Do you see how he played in a mall? Do you no, see that? Alex? Getty? No. Yeah, no, Getty. No, he just he showed up one day randomly in a yeah. mall in Toronto mm-hmm. and just set up this gear as a one-man band. He called it Dr. Lee's one-man band. He dressed up and he put on a hat and glasses. Right. Nobody knew who he was. Yeah, you just sitting there playing, and 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 it just played two hours. And, and the funny part was, you should look this up on YouTube. The funny part was, somebody said, "Hey, play YYZ," and he's playing a ukulele. Started playing YYZ, and oh, the yeah. guy goes, "Yeah, the ukulele." And everyone's like, "That's really good. It sounds just like it." Everybody, nobody knew it was Getty. Oh, that's. <laughs> that's great. It's great. No, I yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, um, I if you guys like film, there there is a movie uh, I just watched a documentary. I love documentaries, especially about music and. There's a documentary I just watched about uh, rap and hip-hop lyricism, and it's called Word is Power. If you get a chance, check this, check this documentary out. It's about the early days of hip-hop and how it sort of progressed into sort of like what's going on now. And what I was really sort of fascinated with was how complex and intricate hip-hop lyrics are. I mean, these guys invent a notation. They, they'll show you, like, on the, their lyrical sheets, they have, like, little dots and dashes, almost like Morse code, mm-hmm. for where the rhythms and the beats lie. I mean, they're really into it, you know? I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I'm like, oh, that's just stuff that is, you know, something I culturally don't understand. But it's really interesting. There's really a lot of complexity behind it, you know? And everything people do gets that. Mm-hmm. Like, everything that people do will develop that and I like country music. Okay, you think of country music as this incredibly formulaic kind of thing, right? Yeah. So you know the 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 paradox hook, you know, that she got the gold mine, I got the shaft. You know that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons that I check in on country music, not often, but but now and then, is just to listen to see what new, incredibly inventive ways people have come up with doing that exact same thing. Mm-hmm. You know? On one hand, I could stay and be your loving man, but the reason I must go is on the other hand, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. those that formula. I mean, there's a lot of them, but just that one—the creative ways that people come up with to solve that one—is just fascinating to me. I mean, human brains are just extraordinary, yeah. and it doesn't matter how formulaic or fixed something might be. I mean, they're going to come up with, you know cool ways with lots of layers and you know it's just people are interesting yeah yeah reinventing the um, wheel over and over and over and over again (laughs) yeah yeah so um paul you have you have an interesting look i mean i i as someone who has been involved in music composition for as long as you have and sort of seen it through the through the lens of history right through western art music you know what i'm saying old right yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like seeing things like you and I, I mean, Aaron and I can never speak right to the volumes that you can and like Beethoven and Brahms and all the classical guys you can. What well, I want to know is, um, has much really changed, do you think, in the last few hundred years in terms of musical writing 
Um, I know stylistically, yes, but I mean, in terms of the mechanics of things, and are we just kind of doing the same, just with different spins on things? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 I mean, what changes is the social context and the tools. Okay. So, you know, like Beethoven had the piano, right? Um, but he also had, you know, like a, a, a composing environment socially and economically, because he had patrons he had to please too, um, you know, that, that helped shape what he came up with. But I think the, you know, the fundamental question of I have an, a need to create a thing of a certain kind and how do I do that um, still has all the same components you know it's it's from a from an intuitive impulse to some sort of concept to now thinking of it as you know having intellectual structure components and whatever until you make the whole thing finished um, the pathways are different but everybody's still walking you know what I mean mm -hmm. yeah um, so no I don't think it's really changed I think that's one of the things that excites me is that when I remember to do it, um, I don't always remember to do this, but when I sit down and try and work, uh, to, to just not take for granted this process that, you know, a lot of something really cool might happen if I just shut up and pay attention and go about my business, you know, the way I want. And I don't think that's any different for me than it was for, you know, somebody writing music 400 years ago, or for that matter, somebody writing music today in Senegal. You know, yeah. or something. you know, it's just like it's just it's just people creating things and allowing themselves. I think one of the liberating things about creating things is it just allows yourself yourself to let suspend the rules a little bit and just go, what if, what if, what if I yeah. try this? You know, what if I try this weird thing? And the beauty of digital audio workstations, of course, is there's always Command Z. You know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, least, that was awful. No one will ever know that I did that. You know, gone. You know, Aaron, how, how's the the songwriting classes going with your with your students? I know you were mentioning a while back you were getting delving into this. Is that yeah um, working pretty well? Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> I'd love to say it's going great for the ones that participate. It's going great. Uh, it's just really hard to get people to engage. Uh, songwriting is hard. It takes a lot of decision making, um, and it takes a lot of you know, just going with it. Uh, and it's for scary. Some, yeah, it's it is. Yeah. It's it's scary, and for some uh, for some odd reason, I don't possess that. <laughs> and the fear I, part. It's, yeah, it's it's very interesting to me that I mean, there's so many people, so many of my students, and I would venture to say a good ninety percent, if not more, they just don't know how to take the plunge they don't know how to just say okay i'm going to go ahead with this idea or and if that doesn't work i can always have more ideas it's that fear of just being able to do it that holds them back from the entire process uh, yeah, no, no matter I how much it. i teach yeah. the process no matter how much i walk them through the process or give them examples of the process when i lay it back on their hands their lap it's always i i just don't know and it's like singing like you you, you don't when you sing it's I, I was always looked at it like if you sing it's like that's your voice out there and it's like a representation of you mm. if you're singing sucks if you're a bad singer you're like oh it just feel awful. Mm. I've always looked at songwriting the same way. That if you write something, you put it out there, people are like that's not good. You're like, oh, uh, something kind of 
there's something icky about me. You know what I'm saying? It's just, because you wrote bad music. Yeah, yeah right. I, I've always been of the thought of, well, what is bad music? No right. matter what you write at any one point. Now, obviously, there is such a thing as bad music. But is there? But you're always going to have an audience somewhere. Someone out there is always going to be be able to identify with you and your style or the words that you're putting down or the emotion that you're putting out. Um, they, you do have an audience. There are people who will identify with you. And that, 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 that fear is what holds so many people back that if you would yeah. just kind of say, look, I am me and that's okay. I'm just going to put it out there, whether I can sing, whether I can play or yeah. not, I'm just going to put it out there and there will be people who appreciate what you do, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, it's a fearlessness. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys know who Wesley Willis is? By any no. no. Okay, Wesley Willis. All right, I don't know if I ever got it. I'll do it real quick. Wesley Willis was a street musician that lived in Chicago. Hugely popular guy. And he wrote hundreds of songs that are all basically the same song. And he did it with a little Casio thing with a bunch of rhythm patterns on it and stuff. Um Homeless guy for a long time, um, incredibly social. Um, when he would meet his fans, he would do this head bump thing with them. There was this ritual. It's like that was his greeting. He would kind of bump their head. Yeah. Really, you know, and he had a callus on his head from doing it to so many people. That's how <laughs> popular this guy was. Um, yeah. Bands, there, there are tribute albums where bands, like rock bands, have covered his songs mm. and stuff. But if you listen to this stuff, you just go, this is the weirdest music I've ever heard. It's just, you know, stuff on a Casio and this big, guy bellowing you know words about you know nirvana playing at the agora ballroom or whatever you know right. um yeah so you just never know what's gonna connect with with people you know but but the 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 thing about the fear of creating things almost always comes from that thing we were talking about earlier where you have to just block off any sort of evaluative judgment of what you're doing while you're doing it. Right. 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 So right. That, then you can sort of say, okay, now I'm going to close that door and, and, and now we'll look at the stuff and say, well, what's, you know, what's accept acceptable, you know, based on whatever that might be. A couple of years ago, I, uh, I met John Searles. I don't know if I ever told you guys the story. John Searles, the editor for cosmopolitan, and uh, he was given a lecture up here in one of the local libraries. So Trey said to me, you got to go talk to this guy if you want to get into some writing. And I sat through his lecture for like half an hour, whatever it was. And I went to a book signing and sat down with him. And actually, he was a really nice guy. I sat with me for like an hour. And I said to him, I said, John, I said, I'm really struggling with this writing thing. What can you tell me? He's like, well, what's the, what's the big problem for you? And I said, I'm always judging if what I'm writing is good or bad. He goes, That's, you got it backwards. Right. Goes, you don't think about good or bad. You think about what kind of audience can I build? Now, that's the guy who, who edited for Cosmo for like 20 some years. And he's like, yeah. you're building an audience. It's not about good writing or bad writing. It's like you're, you're getting your voice out there connecting to people. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing. About as close as, as it is, like, about as close as you can get to worrying about what anybody else thinks um, that's not destructive, I think, actually is one of these oblique strategies cards. It's one of my favorite ones when it comes up. It's, would anybody want it? Hmm. That's would anybody want it? Like yeah, there's value for thing. it. Yeah. And you can either accept or reject that as a valid thing, but, but it, sometimes it's just good because you get so head down in the task, you know, you're just buried in the engine, you know, and you're not really noticing like, would anyone want to drive this vehicle? Oh man. Um, 
And anybody could be anybody, yeah. including yourself and actually most importantly yourself. What I want it. Because sometimes I forget that. I forget like you get so caught up in the task, you just go, Am I would I enjoy what I'm doing here if I've just encountered it, you know? That's crazy. It's a valid question, you know. It is a great question. It's yeah. gonna save me a lot of time in my youth. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I remember the time I, I was like in the house for like, remember on Driftwood Drive for like three weeks, you know, just kind of never coming out of the house and just writing stuff. There's, there's a certain aspect of like, okay, that's just borderline either creative or just being nuts. Yeah. Well, I think we get, I, I do think we get inside of our heads a little bit too much, too much. at points, yeah. especially as creatives. Yeah. Um, but there is a time when you have to be uh, confident in who you are and just not care. You just, yeah. you can't change, yeah. you can't change what's, who you are specifically, and you can't change what's going to come out of you. <laughs> that's for sure. Right. I mean, you, <laughs> there's nothing you can do that's going to change that as a person. You yeah. are who you are and you're going to write and you're going to sound like who you are no matter what. And as long right. as you can accept that and be comfortable with that, then all of that fear and all of that other stuff what people were going to think and blah, 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 blah. All of that goes away and you are yeah. now free to just be who you are, you are. and it's write fearless. it, record it. And whatever happens from there is okay. Do you guys know Daniel Johnston? That name sound familiar? Yeah. Daniel Johnston. Okay. He was the guy, Paul, who Kurt Cobain looked up to. In fact, one of the old Nirvana shirts, so you see like the smiley face with the two X's over mm -hmm. was, or wasn't that the logo? It was, it was the logo for Daniel Johnston record. Anyway, Daniel Johnston was a pioneer in lo-fi. And Daniel Johnston was this guy. In fact, I think he's got schizophrenia or something, right? Aaron, like, did he do this thing where oh, he, was, he was flying an airplane with his, or his dad was flying an airplane and in the flight he took the keys out of the ignition and crashed the plane. He has a lot of mental illness. But uh, Daniel Johnston is this uh, singer-songwriter back in the, I think in the late 90s, early 90s. He was producing this lo-fi records. You're just getting up kind of like this, like, I don't know, a Casio keyboard, just getting up with just a guitar and pounding out and wrote these lyrics that Kurt Cobain loved. He idolized this guy and uh, and dedicated a lot of, you would see it in the old, in the early Nirvana stuff. He was actually paying tribute to this man. And uh, it, ju it just gives me like, it, it makes me think about this guy who obviously didn't give a f about, you know, what the industry was saying. He just went up there mm -hmm. and just did his own voice and was who he was and and people he got he had a little following and and mm -hmm. you can go on the internet today and, and look up his stuff and there's there's a fan base you it's can amazing. do anything you want as long as you can find the right people who will get it yeah right i mean i look at somebody like mike Patton, you know oh yeah from mr bungle yeah i mean i look at bungle and i'm just like okay there's like millions of people like this stuff oh yeah but when you first play it for somebody that's never heard it they're just like this is it's weird which is actually is insane you know yeah, yeah. Well, he's an interesting guy <laughs> yeah yeah you know so uh but he's also this force of nature as a human being so you know he's obviously gonna you know part of that engine is going to go toward making sure that you know this is you know, well distributed and available, and, oh, yeah. Yeah. and he's he's got a whole shtick with. That. He was a, he was arrested. Did you hear about this? Uh, he had a suitcase full of sex toys. What? He was arrested in a hotel. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Exactly. So what? I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah. 
<laughs> music kind of, you know, that's not inconsistent. No, no. And, but I love about Mike Patton is when you when you look at a, like look him up like on any kind of not that Wikipedia is the litmus test for our identity yeah. today, but maybe it is in the 21st century. Um, but it's a he classifies himself as a voice artist more than oh, anything sure. else. Yeah, and and you get that. Well, yeah, but he's also one of the most literate. I mean, just listen to this stuff. And as somebody, like I said before, who's, you know, like my listening habits are really broad, not that deep, but it means I've heard a lot of the stuff. So it's like I listen to these Mr. Bungle recordings and I'm like, that's Balinesian Ketjak singing. This is from some West African tradition. This is some weird Italian futurist music stuff that's in here. And he seems to know this huge body of literature and obviously like one of his big influences john zorn i don't know if you oh, was it really yeah. i i know john zorn did oh yeah i didn't, I didn't know Patton was into him yeah oh, that's interesting any of the cobra stuff or um you know the i mean even naked city you know you just well go, yeah i mean you t- you turned me on to that album with bill Fussell. yeah yeah so it's this very sort of avant-garde one-way trip kind of music that you don't know what's going to happen next right you know and actually here's the thing i love about that the place You'd never guess where everybody got that. So composers like Zappa and all these people who write this music that's like really progressive and and sounds like that. It's Carl Stalling, the guy who was the music director for Looney Tunes, the Looney Tunes cartoons. Awesome. You think about that stuff and it's all situational. Mm, yeah. You know, not falling down the stairs kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so when you think about uh, think about Zappa, you know, you just go, oh, really episodic. This little thing, this little doodle, this incredibly virtuosic thing. And if you go back and listen to those recordings from the sessions for those cartoons, these orchestras were amazing. These people are sight reading this stuff. You oh, know, yeah. so like, oh, are they really? Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. I mean, there was no multi track back then. <laughs> well, yeah, right. I never yeah. There are recordings of these sessions with uh, you know, with him talking to the group, you know, and um, yeah, it's incredible. But it was a huge influence on generations of american composers yeah. john adams even you know mm-hmm. um but it all starts with a guy named ray scott and uh, the, the, you could do a whole podcast on ray scott ray scott was a jazz musician in the 20s and 30s he started out he had the ray scott quintet which was actually six people which kind of gives you a hint of this guy's personality so but what the way he would do it this is kind of an interesting creative tool he would have them improvise and they would just screw around until something cool happened and you go do that again and then he would write it down right? Uh, and build stuff out of that. So what he was doing he was using jazz musicians to create compositions that were fixed pieces. So he would have them play these things and they're crazy. You can go look them up. They're just these not long, you know, two and a half minute crazy little things, really virtuosic. So you need really good players. But I think the jazz musicians got bored with not being able to improvise because ultimately they're just playing the same notes every time they play. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so he had a hard time making this work for uh, in a sustainable way. So he invented the sequencer mm. to wow. come up with okay. combinations of notes and durations and stuff to be able to figure out, you know, like, oh, that's a good idea. So he's basically creating intuitively generated found objects. Well, when Robert Moog and his dad came along to buy circuits for their theremin business, mm. Moog walks into this place and sees this guy that's got these modulars okay. and generators and sequencers and all this stuff and just goes, oh, this could all be in one thing, okay. you know? Hence the Moog yeah. synth was great. Right. So not only did he kind of is the father of the modular synthesizer, 
he invented this way of making music that has had this huge influence on American composers, and nobody's heard of the guy. You know? He also did kind of funny commercials and stuff. Like, he made a lot of his music. He lived in New York. He had a two-room apartment, one of which looks like the inside of a nuclear reactor because there's just, like, yeah, audio hardware. Um, yeah, and he would do these electronic compositions and stuff, and it worked with people like Jim Henson. There's a bunch of stuff that they did, this weird sort of 60s psychedelic spoken word art stuff, you know, where Jim Henson is pretending to be wandering around in his own brain, and there's all these strange sound effects and stuff. But, yeah, there's all kinds of weird innovative music that finds an audience, and, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to be on Spotify with 3 million listeners a month. Yeah. Well, that's just, yeah. Everybody's in that mindset, though. You know, it's hard. Right. And I don't think it needs to be that anymore. I think we need to, I think tech has made us to the point where we can literally broaden out. And even even the absence of technology, just, you know, there there are ways to be a musician. It goes back to something Aaron and I have talked about on this show many times, Mm -hmm. you know, having a musical lifestyle. Yeah. Beyond the recording industry. Yeah, it's just different, you know, but I think there's still got to be that interpersonal connection um the kind of thing that comes from live performance or you know that sort of thing um you know otherwise it's just it's just digital bits you know Um, right you know i mean and and the artist that you're i mean (laughs) potentially the artist that you're following might not even be a real thing right you know what i mean i mean you could fabricate an online band like so easy yeah that's very true you know that's great. Let's all let's all do that. We should, <laughs> right? We See, should. We, let's make a new one. The three of us. An online band. Hard <laughs> to play together anyway. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, so. I mean, you could do online concerts too. You could do yeah. go the whole the whole route. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people have been doing stuff like that. Um, the composer Tan Dunn did this interesting project a while ago where he. Um, put together. He wrote this piece of music and basically just said. Um, Okay, performers of the world, mm-hmm. get in front of your computer and play, you know, your part. And then he actually compiled a performance of this thing from all of the missions. Uh, um, you know, kind of a cool idea. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you could, you know, I mean, it's hard to come up with a, you know, a, a version of that that just involves like a rock band, but, you know. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's the point. It's just to kind of look at these new creative angles and uh, interesting ways of thinking about it. And I, I, for me, it's no different than like what, who was a Penderecki who was doing, was that the guy who was doing like the microphone swinging pendulum music? Was that him? Oh, pendulum music, Steve Reich. No, Steve Reich. Oh, yeah. So it's no. the same kind of, same kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Anyway, there's lots of ideas out there and a lot of them are cool and not all of them have, you know, commercial viability. So, yeah. right. you know, and that's, that's, you know that's just part of the that's just part of the world but some stuff surprises me like i still i'm i'm shocked when i think that you know back in 1973 you know bands like yes are touring playing tales from topographic oceans to like full arenas yeah like yeah. wow okay cool in fact that's that's my sweet spot for my musical influences cuz i was like 12 years old or something when that came out so you know, that was some of the earliest stuff I encountered. And I just thought, oh, this is perfectly normal for, you know, a whole arena full of people to show up to watch a band open their set by playing the finale from The Firebird by Igor Stravinsky. Right. Like, what? You know, how how is that even happening? You know, I can't imagine that sort of thing going on today. 
So, um, so yeah, you just never know. That's crazy. Yeah. But it's kind of a magical thing. I mean, just the not knowing, I guess, you know, is, is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You never know when you've made something really cool. And artists are often surprised by what they make, what, by what of what they make actually seems to get traction. Right. You know, we weren't thinking about that as a, that was just a, like a B side at best. And, yep. but it's the hit, you yep. know. Oh yeah. You as an artist have no idea what the masses are going to like. <laughs> it's just... you know, Joe Perry has lots of regrets about dream on hmm. because he, wow. he just thought, well, this is just a throwaway tune, you know? And so his guitar work on it, he's not happy with, you know, because he just kind of went in and laid down the tracks and went back to, you know, doing whatever he's doing. And according to him anyway, and um, right. yeah, you know, he, just didn't, he didn't know. Didn't know. Yeah, that's crazy. You have no way of knowing. Yeah, I don't think Stevie Nicks' new landslide was going to be what it was either. No, no. It's it's it's. And she it's was a, like nineteen or something. Yeah. I mean, what would she know? Yeah. yeah, and it goes back to like it, you know, all the way back to the beginning and and your album, Paul. Um, you know, when you're writing it, you don't really know what's going to become of it, but you know, mm-hmm. it, it is. It's a part of you. You're putting it out there and. I did have one question um, in terms of your album. Yeah. Um, who all was involved? Because I know listening to the album, there's there's a lot going on. So what parts are you responsible for and what parts are other parts responsible for? Well, basically, I do everything on there except for drum set. Okay. And the there's Anchors has a cellist on it, Elizabeth Jeremica. Okay. Um, and uh, so drum set players are Spencer Inch and Kevin Lowe. Okay. Um, both, you know, people I know from Pennsylvania. And uh, then the last track, the, all the female vocals are my daughter, Elizabeth, actually. Okay. Yeah, just lots and lots of takes. Yeah. And, <laughs> in, and in terms of, like, giving, uh, are these pre-planned? Because you had talked about earlier how you kind of sing your parts out and like that. Is that a process that you went through in terms of giving them the pieces? Or how did you communicate to them in terms of what you were looking for within the within the scope of... Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, basically with the drummers, what I did was I wrote a drum... I wrote all the drum parts. Okay. You know, so I just wrote them out. Um, we went in, um, laid down those things with a lot of latitude. So it's like, here's a fill I wrote. You can play it, you know, but right. let's make where you do your own thing. Right. And then after we, I was pretty sure that we'd gotten, you know, enough material based on what I composed. Then I just said, okay, now let's do some takes, just whatever. Right. Like mm-hmm. try different feels, try different, you know, and sometimes that was hard for them because they'd already been playing what I wrote, you know, mm-hmm. so they had to kind of bust out of that. But, but some of the stuff that's on there are things that were, I mean, you know, things that they just contributed to the thing. But most of it's, you know, notated out, you know. Okay. So if I wanted to do it with a band and then I had a drummer that read, um, you know, we could just do it. Right. But um, uh, the cello part was all written out, um, you know, and the challenge on that was it's all glissandi, you know. So I was trying to get a classical cellist that's used to using all four fingers right. to, to okay. play everything on one finger, you know. Um that was about the only difficulty with that. And then with my daughter, it was just like, sing these notes. Here's the the melody, you know, just do it. I'll give you a reference pitch. You can kind of tune to and just sing it over and over again. I'll get a bunch of takes and then we'll, I'll build a choir out of you. 
that's cool. that was it. And the rest of it was me just laying down, you know, guitar and vocal tracks and playing percussion and, uh, you know, synthesizers and, you know, whatever, because I had the... I mean, one of the advantages of not having to take a band into a studio to do something is that you can, you know, really dig in and, and mess with it until you're pretty sure it's right, which is good news because the final product you're happy with, the bad news is it just slows the whole damn thing down. Right. So it's potentially you're never done. And most of your parts were recorded in your studio that you have there or? That's it, yeah. That's another whole thing. These th I don't even know where half of this stuff was recorded. It was either recorded um, in my... Some of it was recorded here, but this is fairly recent. We haven't lived here that long. Right. Uh, some of it was recorded in my little studio in my attic in Pennsylvania. Um, some of it was... Um, some of the takes, like we did the drum parts in the studio at Penn State because we had a better room and right. really more, more good preamps than I had in my studio. So... Um, uh, and then, well, actually, four of the tracks were recorded at the at the studio of an engineer friend of mine, Bob Klotz, who oh, okay. yeah. produced it. And um, yeah, so Bob and I have been working together for a long time. So he was he was a big help on this. Cool. But yeah, but mostly it's just me and my workstation, and you know. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say. The production value on the album is is wonderful. Uh, obviously, it's, I'm glad to hear you say that because it was a learning process, and I'm is. happy with some of it. Yeah, no. <laughs> as long as you can't tell, I'm I'm good. Yeah, yeah, no. I I uh, I was uh, fairly impressed with uh, with the production value, and now it is that uh, is that something that you mixed on your own, uh, and and also on top of that, mastering. Uh, well, yeah, okay, so mixing, basically how a lot of this worked was I did the preliminary mixing. Okay. And then I worked with Bob, because yep. um, he, you know, just to have that other set of ears on it, and also he's got some instincts that I value that, you know, I, I knew I could rely on. Yeah. Um, he also has, you know, the guy's got 80 different compressors on his workstation, you know, it's like, so... <laughs> Let's try that tape head emulator on the bass. Right. Okay. You know, great. So, so a lot of the sweetening on four of the tracks anyway happened with him. Um, I did all the stuff on the other ones, mm -hmm. but um, but then mastering was done at um, Airshow Mastering in um, Colorado Springs. Okay. Hey guys, I don't mean to cut this short, but I, I have to I have to run. But if you guys want to continue, by all means, uh, uh, do so. I just want to jump in here, but um, it was great. Chad, both of you, uh, great catching up. Paul, thank you so much. It's been awesome. Um, so, yeah. Always good to see you, Tony. Yeah, same. From so far away. Yeah, it's right. great. It's Mexico. Okay. <laughs> we'll come out. I mean, beautiful place, but it's not. It's on the way to, like, nowhere. <laughs> Which is a good thing. Good. It is. Well, in some ways, yeah. Yeah, it it's really nice. Yeah. All right. Take care, gents. Yeah. Thank right. you. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. All right. How we doing, Aaron? Awesome. Yeah, man. That that sounds awesome. I mean, I, I'm, unlike Tony, I'm very much into the technical part of it, the recording and the, and the and the mixing and the, the actual process that goes into either the recording of the album, the concepts. Uh, that that's always fascinated me for as long as I can live. Well, I can um, tell. I didn't think all the stuff around you was like just a decorating scheme. Or <laughs> <laughs> I see the. I saw the the other camera angle with the two deluxe. Yep. Yep, and the twin. You know, like yeah. That's yeah. You're you're obviously really dedicated to that. Yeah, yeah. Sound uh, sound is uh, 
you know, it's it's important that what goes into our in, into our ears <laughs> yeah. that it sounds well, good. I picked my my good vocal mic. Yeah, for today. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the album. It, it's uh, it's a, uh, it's very well done. Uh, and so there's just the seven tracks on it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there was I had nine originally that I was going to like had mapped out, but it's, I swear, every place that I tried to stick two of those tunes just broke the thing. Oh. And and I also had the experience. Um, I'm going to talk about another artist here, but when the back album Colors came out okay. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, I, the production on that album is really interesting to me because it's just two people. It's yeah. just back in this producer he worked with in LA playing everything and doing the production. And so I paid real close attention to it. And I just thought, wow, this is a fantastic album. But then when I realized um, after, I don't know, a few listens, it's like, yeah, these three tracks are really kind of, this is where stuff goes to die. Right. I actually went and made a playlist. Um, I called it "Colors Re- Delamed." I think. Is what <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. And 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 it was it actually was seven tracks that when I played it, it, it was so much better mm. than the ten or whatever. I don't even eleven or whatever that are on the. For me, right. you know, I, for just for me, it, it just worked so much better, and there was no like, oh, that's that's you know. Yeah. So I I just thought, you know what, it's going to be 35 minutes instead of 45 or whatever, you know, but as a as an architecture it just it just worked. Yeah. And no other arrangement of those songs worked the same way and so I just thought, okay, screw it, I'm just going to come up with this. I'll have I'll have two more songs for the next album. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. There are there are really with with the digital age, there really are no rules anymore. You know, the album of you know, seventy-eight minutes on an album—that—that's all gone wayward. Really, it, it can be anything you want. As an artist, you can be releasing things monthly. You can re- be releasing EPs every couple of months or whatever it is. It's uh, no, totally. I want to do some that are just four or five song suites. Yeah, the set. But you run into this thing with the music industry, though, that in terms of distribution, technically to be an album, mm-hmm. it needs to be 30 minutes long. Oh. Otherwise, it's got to be released as a bunch of singles. That's mm-hmm. kind of really how the business model plays right. out. Okay. So you do have to kind of play with that. Right. A little bit. Like okay. if you want to, you know, put out an album, you can put it out as an album. But in terms of things... Um, um, in terms of the way it's registered, you know, with like performance rights and all that kind of stuff, um, it matters the right. time, you know, but that's the only factor. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, you know, just put out whatever, whenever yeah. it's, it, it's kind of nice that way, you know, that you just have those options. Now what to do, that's another whole story, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. I'm, I'm very much in the early part of the learning curve on that. I mean, it's kind of nice to, to be really in the middle of one's beginnerness. Yeah. Especially at my age, you know, when I've been kind of thinking about this stuff for this long to just go, yeah, I love the fact that some of the stuff is totally new to me that I just don't, you know, I haven't worked it out or uh, to the extent that you ever work things out, you know, it's like, I don't have the feeling like I'm, I'm supposed to have expertise at this. You know, maybe other people like Tony might think I'm supposed to have expertise at it. <laughs> right, uh, right. But I'm I'm fully happy and in touch with the fact that I'm 
really kind of at sea when it comes to certain aspects of this, you know, and, and it's okay, you know, because like I said, I made that choice a long time ago to to not be Quinn, you know, yeah. um, you know, whereas he's somebody who's, you know, so in touch with his craft that I, it's inseparable from him. Right. Whereas for me, like the guitar, for instance, is like, I've gone for a year without touching a guitar, mm-hmm. you know, um, but then the funny thing happens, like once I pick it up again and get sort of in some kind of playing shape, I notice that my playing is way better than it was before. I think it's just I've somehow become a better musician or just a more insightful person or something. I don't know what it is, but it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, I would never have played this like that before. Yep. You know? Yeah. I think we get into ourselves a little too much when we have our instrument around us all the time and we're kind of, we have a direction. And when we take ourselves out of that for a long time and come back to it, we're just free and we're, we allow ourselves that, that, you know, just to be able to go anywhere and do anything. And that's, that's really refreshing. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the downside of taking those breaks, um, is that, you know, I wish I could play better. Right, right. I don't consider myself like a bad guitarist or anything, but but it's like, you know, there are people in the world that they're a guitarist. Yeah. Like they're just so good at that thing yeah. that you know there's a like my wife was telling me about this guy that she saw at a um, in a restaurant in Ontario, mm. and it was karaoke night, right? So the karaoke machine was a guy with a guitar, and people would just walk up and say, "I want to play, I want to sing this," and he'd just go, yeah. "Well, how's this key?" Yeah. <laughs> and just knew everything, you know, I'm just like, yeah. no, that's a real player. Yeah. You know, guys like Tommy Tedesco. Mm. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the, the LA session yeah. guy who could do anything. Yeah. Like you just put him in the gig and he, he's like, yeah, want to sound Mexican? Sure. I can do that. Yeah. You want to sound, you know, whatever he did this, um, in that, um, that wrecking crew documentary, um, that's about those guys. Um, mm. there's this great scene where he describes for those of you, might see this right. who've seen that, you'll know what i'm talking about but when i was in college when i was around this time where i was making this decision about you know do i want to be in a band or do i go into the academy yeah. if i can um he was doing this um tour um this kind of workshop thing that was funded by some foundation where he was just going around the country talking about you know, being a musician and, and what he did. And so he did this little shtick as part of it that he did when he came to see us, which I loved, which was he had his guitar with him. Mm. And at the time he was working on the TV show, Charlie's angels, the original one. Right. And, um, you know, so he said, yeah, okay. So I come into the session and they go, okay, so this part of this episode is based in Greece, play something Greek. And he'd go, um, okay, well, how's this? You know, you play something and they go, yeah, that's great. You know? Yeah. And then they'd have another episode and it's like, well, now they're in Spain, or now they're in Brazil or something, and he would play basically exactly the same thing, but change like one little thing about it, like maybe one little thing about the rhythm to make it like a little dancier, or or throw in you know a kind of flamenco style scrape in the middle of a riff or something. Yeah. You know, and it was like that was all it took, and that lesson of what kind of cues people need to understand the music like how basic and simple that is was profound you know but that guy could do anything i mean he's on half of the records that we listen to from the 60s and 70s it seems anything recorded in la practically yes he's on it you know it's amazing he's on all that beach boy stuff yeah you know 
So those guys, you know, when I think about that, or I think about a you know person like Quinn, who can probably like you could spend three hours just playing song after song after song with that guy if you happen to know them, um, is you know that's that's a kind of musicianship I really admire. Yeah, you know, yeah. I really you know I, I can't even aspire to it. Um, I just can <laughs> admire it. You know, I really I really like that. Because yeah. I mean, I'm a bass player. You know, yeah. I mean, I play bass in all kinds of different music and stuff, but it's not the kind of thing that you just get up a bunch of repertoire of songs you can play. No. You know, I mean. Yeah, understandably. Yeah, you know, and that was fine. I mean, I love being the bass player in a band because, you know, you get to really shape the sound of the band. Yeah. But nobody knows it. So you can be kind of inconspicuous and really important at the same time, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm, I'm pretty shy. I think probably the reason I, I didn't play guitar in these bands is, just you know there are times where i just don't want to be that guy hanging it out you yeah, know i know exactly. sometimes i do and sometimes <laughs> no you know so on a bad night it was always kind of like you know, yeah that's not that much fun plus you got to memorize you know 40 guitar solos mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah you know yeah. if i play a wrong note it's like the band doesn't sound so good you know if the lead guitarist blows something everybody knows what happened oh yeah Oh yeah, yeah. So it was partly just cowardice. <laughs> well, but, I mean, that's all right too. Yeah, but, you know? well, the, at the end of the day, I have a lot of nice bass guitars. Right. So that's what matters. <laughs> Toys. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, some of them are like part of me. I have a um, '75 jazz bass that I bought new. Ooh. It's my first serious bass. Yeah. You know, and God, it sounds great. Yeah. You know, I love that thing. So it's awesome. Yeah, but anyway, so cool. So uh, before we end here, um, yeah. what are your what are your future plans for writing music and, and albums, and what do you plan to do from here? Um, more of the same. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, I mean it's early on, so that'll change. Right. I mean, I'm old enough to know that anything I decide I'm going to do is not going to look anything like I think it looks now. Right. Um, but yeah, the plan is to just. Um, Keep working on this stuff. Get out a couple of, uh, you know, maybe put out a couple singles in the next few months. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another album within the year, and just keep making these things. And um, you know, find people who dig it. Awesome. You know? I mean, so far that's been pretty easy. But then again, you know, most of the people that are encountering this thing, frankly, at this point, being the first project, um, are people that already know me. <laughs> you know, yeah. in one way or another. I mean, they either know of me or 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 not. But you know, they're um, it's it's early yet, so there's not a lot of product, right? So that's really kind of the thing. I just need to get you know, like I said, I have like I don't even know where I put this giant folder I had sitting around here. But I mean, it's just like projected song ideas or <laughs> the folders I have of finished arranged things that just need to be recorded yeah. you know, I mean everything in between. So, so there's a lot of creative work that's just been going on in the background that I haven't really had frankly the time or mental space to, to work on. So I'm going to move to New Mexico mm -hmm. and get some, you know, kind of studio. Yeah. Um, I'd like to get pictures of your space at some point, by the way, oh, yeah. <laughs> just to see, I'm always interested in how people, so, and how people do a room. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I um, like, I like you am in a closet. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can, okay. I'm going to do a plug here. Tony pitched this coffee. Um, have you used Sonar works at all? Oh yeah. 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 Okay. 
all right, that's what made this album possible. Because okay. I was mixing these spaces that I was just like, no matter what I would do, mm-hmm. I would just listen to it and just go, I can't get rid of the clouds here. Right. It doesn't matter what I do with the low mids. It doesn't matter what, I just can't quite get the space between all the things. And it was just the rooms I was mixing in. And so right. um, when I used it in here, which literally, I mean, this is like, it's got all kinds of bad things about it. Yeah. As soon as I tested the room and got something to compensate for the room, it's like all of a sudden I could hear everything I had been doing in the last two years yeah. on this album. It's like I didn't even remember that that part of the slide solo was in this song. Yeah. Like it was that profound a difference. Um, so, yeah, anybody who's working in some crappy room, um, you know, I think could benefit from this. Which is the majority of everybody. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, where it's like, I've got the recording gear and everything. Yeah. I just can't manage to get a decent, you know, oh, it's more than the recording thing. Because you can record anything almost anywhere and mm-hmm. make it and, and work with it, you know, yeah. like it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but it's the monitoring. It's the trying to listen to it and trying to figure out like what you're actually hearing. I mean, it's almost impossible if you're in this room with all of these resonances and nodes and yep. you know there's there's nothing at at 600 hertz at the listening station like no matter what you do you won't hear anything on that frequency band you yeah. know and like but you don't know until you fix it you know and then you kind of figure out that i actually kind of was on the right track all along that was the refreshing thing yeah was that it's like, oh, this should have worked, and it did, but I just couldn't tell. That's exactly know? right. Yeah. yeah How many times tell. you burn a CD or burn it to an, a, you know, a wave file and run out to your car and check it, and you're like, why the heck can't I hear that? Or where did that yeah, come where, from? Where's all the coming from? <laughs> right. This plate's rattling. I can't even hear that in my room. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that, that's, you know. But that's just part of what I mean about being a beginner. Yeah. I mean... I've been teaching audio production for a, a long time now, you know, but yet at the same time, um, you know, there's just no substitute for a lot of trial and error yeah. and, um, you know, getting input from other people about what you're doing. And so, you know, for me, that's still fairly early on in the process. So, yeah. um, you know, and I learned a lot. I mean, you'd learn more from teaching, obviously, than, you know, almost anything else, because yeah. now you have to be able to articulate what it is that you're trying to talk about in a coherent yeah. way so you really have to understand it and that helped me a lot i think you know just you know working with students and their projects and my own stuff and um you know just trying to solve those problems yeah um you know in that context i think was really informative so i got to take some shortcuts i think um but you know I'm, hell i'm old enough to where it's like i ought to get to do that a little bit right yeah <laughs> absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah very much so yeah Yeah. awesome well um, well. if you could tell everybody where they could go to find out more about you well uh paulbarsom.com good place to start um it's actually a fairly new website but it's got some basic information about this project and um some about me there will be more. Awesome. It's going to include a bicycling part too. I have to put that on there because that's like that's a huge part of my life. Right. Yeah. I, I know. Ever since you know back at state college, you were you were definitely into it then as well. So yeah, it's been it's been a while. 
yeah, it's kind of made life possible through, you know, I mean, I rode all winter and everything. I know I always commuted on bike and yeah. You know, so hide your bikes. <laughs> get yeah. hit though. Very cool. Uh, and you obviously are on SoundCloud as well. Yep. And, uh, Twitter, Facebook, well, Instagram, any of that? Yeah, Facebook, um, the Weed Garden. You can find it on there. It's, uh, I mean, the things everywhere. It's, it's on, you know, um, all the download and streaming places. Good. Um, so you can find it, you know, pretty much wherever you go. Awesome. It's, a, you know, I mean, it's the one with the green Dano Longhorn bass on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's pretty recognizable. <laughs> yeah, you know, I that that was my base. Yeah. For a while I had that base. And um you know, I actually have another one that's a modernized version of that base. Like that one's a replica of the original, which right. had it's got some issues, you know. It's twenty four fret base, but it doesn't play a tune above about the fourteenth because it's just a piece of wood right. for a bridge, right? You know, right. so um, yeah, this one's in tonable bridge and tuners and everything. I'm just like, why do I have these two bases? So, actually, so that the album cover is a picture taken when I sold it on eBay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's where that that's where that photograph came from. It didn't have the stickers on it and everything. That's right. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's good. Good. Yeah. So anyway, well, thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Given the nature of the people that you've had on here before, you know, I just I'm really flattered that. Yeah. You know, no, as soon as I got the opportunity, I absolutely love to have you on, and uh, definitely would love to catch up with you in the future and see how uh, things are going. I'll let you know. I'll put you. I mean, if you're not on the mailing list now, you will be. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll keep you, in, I'll, I'll keep you informed. Awesome. Thank yeah, you, Paul. And, all right, man. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll see you later. Yeah. Take it easy. All right, bye. Bye.